It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, we're uh, back into the study in the book of Colossians, and uh, we are finally in chapter 2. Again, uh, the reason I've been spending so much time specifically looking at chapter 1 is because I really wanted to lay a good foundation for where the rest of the book goes. If we have a bad or a misunderstanding or if we're just glossing over chapter 1, I really think we're going to miss the heart of what Paul is doing in the whole book of Colossians. So just thank you for your patience as we've been walking through the study. And I know we're finally in study number 10 and now really getting into the, uh, uh, the rest of the book, starting in chapter 2 here. And what I would like to do is I want to read through chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Uh, this is the section where Paul is talking about the false teaching that has been propagated in the church in Colossae. And I want to read this just so that we have an overview, and then I want to start breaking it into some pieces. So this is what Paul says in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, starting verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ." Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, I know there's a lot going on in that passage. And uh, I really wrestled with how am I going to walk through this content uh, with you? And part of the dilemma is uh, I would love to slow down and, and walk through each of these sections. Uh, we're going to walk through four sections today. 
I'd love to walk through each of these sections one by one by one and spend an entire session kind of unfleshing, you know, just kind of unfolding it, fleshing it out and really applying it to the days in which we live. Uh, but here was, here was my dilemma. As I was looking at all of this, I was getting depressed, <laughs> if I can be honest, because I was realizing we're talking about the problems of the Colossians church. We're talking about the false teaching that was just springing up in this body. And I was realizing I really don't want to spend a lot of time dealing with the problems. I, I want to focus on Jesus. Because as you'll see through this entire thing, the solution that Paul is giving to every single issue that is going on in the church of Colossae is Jesus. And so my thought was, is rather than drag this out through four sessions and walk through each of these problems individually, uh, we're just kind of do a broad overview in this particular session and look at all four of them at one time. And I think God, God I've been praying that God would just kind of bring this all together. And I think, or at least my prayer has been, that maybe in seeing them all as an overview, uh, maybe God will do something special in all of our lives and just kind of bring, bring to heart some of these key areas that we may be dealing with. I mentioned this several sessions ago, but it is intriguing as, as we get into this false teaching that was swirling around the church in Colossae. A lot of these same exact issues are the same things we are dealing with in the days in which we live. And I really think that chapter two is very applicable to our lives, even though it's Paul, Paul's dealing with this problem that's happening in this church. And so I've really broken this into four key sections, and I'm calling them beware of four quote-unquote spiritual distractions. And here are the four bewares that I'm saying that Paul is giving. And again, you can break this out however you want to. In fact, several scholars have this broken into three sections, two sections, five sections. I don't think that matters as much, but here's how I'm calling them. I'm saying beware of empty philosophies, beware of legalism, even religious legalism, beware of mysticism, even if it's spiritual mysticism, and beware of asceticism. So what I want to do is I want to walk through each of these with you, but first I want to give three quick, maybe broad observations. Uh, first, there's this idea of we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, as we learned earlier in chapter one. And it's interesting, if we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the dear son, why on earth would we take ourselves and put us back under slavery in, in captivity to these philosophies and all this kind of stuff? Just an interesting observation. Uh, another just quick observation is this idea that uh, as you're looking at this false teaching, isn't it interesting that false teachers rarely try to go out and grab a whole bunch of new people Typically, false teaching happens within a local body. In other words, they're recruiting from people who are just not discerning enough in their own spiritual life. In other words, if we are not grounded in the word of God, it is possible for us to hear false teaching and be swayed by the false teaching. Because again, it's not typically false teaching, as I've noticed, it's not out there somewhere as much as they're trying to recruit from, some, from, from, from the inside of a spiritual body, if you will. Uh, and the other thing I just want to really quickly point out is as we're walking through this, I just want you to notice that every single one of these issues that Paul is dealing with is really an addition to Christ. In other words, what they're doing is they're trying to add something or substitute something for Jesus. So let's dive into these. Number one is this idea of beware of empty philosophies. And this comes from verses 8 through 10. Let me just reread this just so it's in front of us. 
Uh, Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 8 through 10, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. I love that passage. Paul says, I want you to beware of something. Again, if, if we are not on guard, if we are not being Bereans, as Paul would say in Acts, then we have the potential of being swayed and, and, and falling into false teaching. I love what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. He said this, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, he's commending the Bereans. And he says, do you know what the Bereans were doing? They were listening to the word, but what they would do is they would take the word and they would go back into the scriptures and they would make sure that what I am speaking is actually biblical. And Paul says, hey, there's a great benefit and a blessing that I'm, I'm giving them. There, there's, hey, and if I can maybe extend it to us, we need to be Bereans. Isn't it interesting that you, you walk into a Christian bookstore, Chris, <laughs> I don't know if there's even those around anymore, but back in the day, uh, I used to work on a Christian bookstore and you would walk in there and you would just, you would presume that because you're in a Christian bookstore, well, then all the music and all the movies and, and all the books contained therein must be Christian and therefore it's safe and therefore I can just read or watch or listen and I don't have to be discerning. The problem is there, there is no gatekeepers when it comes to Christian material. So there's a lot of modern Christian music. There is, there's Christian movies. There's a lot of Christian books today that are being put out that I would say, if we were to actually analyze it based on Scripture, they're not biblical. And again, I'm not, I'm not downplaying the, the person. I'm not saying they have a deceptive motive. I'm not saying they're purposely trying to undermine things, but the because it is so readily available, you know, with the podcasting and, and with the YouTube stuff and, and creating your own books, anybody can release anything they want to. And as such, we as believers need to be discerning. Otherwise, as Paul says, there is a potential that you're going to get distracted and pulled by these empty philosophies, these ideas and these concepts that really have no biblical foundation. So can I just from the front just encourage you to be a Berean. When you hear something, even, even these sessions that we're walking through in Colossians, don't just go, oh, yes, that's good, amen. But take it and come back to the scriptures and do your own study and see if these things are so. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to deceive. I'm not, I may make a mistake at some point. Hey, I'm, and I'll correct it if, I, if, I, if someone tells me. So I'm not being deceptive. I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, cheeky in that sense. But the reality is, is we need to be discerning in the things we watch, the things we listen to, the things we read, sermons and podcasts, all that stuff. We must be discerning. We must measure it against the perfect standard of God's word. Again, otherwise, we have the potential of being pulled into some deceptive philosophy. Now, it is interesting in our passage, talking about these empty philosophies, Paul says, hey, see to it that no one takes you captive. Uh, that word see to it, it's, it's interesting. It means to be vigilant or on guard or to have a lookout, to be careful. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, which is interesting because that idea was to really carry someone away 
as plunder. And the whole idea came out of that whole slave trade in the Roman days uh, where, you know, we would go conquer this land and then we would take the conquered land, the, the people who were in that conquered land and bring them away as slaves and bring them into this land. And Paul says, I, I don't want you, hey, see to it, be vigilant, be on the lookout, hey, be extra guarded that you would not just be taken away as a captive into another location. Well, what's the location? Oh, don't be taken out of Jesus and brought into a new location of these deceptive philosophies. It's really intriguing to me. Uh, Paul says that you are to beware that you're not taken captive of really three key things, he says. He says, philosophy and empty deception. He says, according to the traditions of men and according to the elementary principles of this world. Uh, that word or that idea of the philosophy really is this idea of uh, high and lofty wisdom and thoughts. And I, I mentioned this kind of hinting at it throughout the previous sessions, but one of the things that seemed to be swirling in the early church of Colossae or in this day uh, was this whole notion of Gnosticism. And we're told that really Gnosticism didn't get its root or its hold until uh, quite a while later, <clears throat> some decades later, uh, after Paul wrote the book of Colossians. However, you, you see the thought processes, you see some of those arguments of the Gnostics infiltrating throughout these false teachings in chapter 2 that Paul's addressing. Uh, one of the things that the, the Gnostics were really big on uh, was this mindset thing. It was all about the mind. It was all about the knowledge. It was all about this secret uh, knowledge. It was all about this superior wisdom. It was all that kind of stuff. Now, one of the things that the, the Gnostics often uh, would propagate is this idea that the physical world, everything that's physical, uh, all, 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 everything that you see, your, your, your physical flesh, all of that was bad and evil. And what was really good, what brings salvation is the knowledge stuff. They're all wrapped up in the knowledge. And so it is intriguing that the roots of that, most scholars say, we're, we're here in the, in the church of Colossae. And so Paul's dealing with those issues. He says, hey, don't let someone grab you and just carry you away as plunder into these philosophical empty deceptions where it seems lofty and, and full of wisdom and, and full of whoa kind of stuff, and yet it really leads nowhere. Uh, he says not only that, but these traditions of men, uh, these secret trainings and, and special informations, and, and, and uh, almost all the scholars that I came across was poking at the fact that these traditions of men was specifically talking about the Gnostics and, and how they, were, they had these secret teachings and they had these traditions and they had these thought processes. Uh, some, some of them said it may also have been alluding to the fact of the, uh, the Jewish culture of the day and the Jewish legalism, which we're going to get into, and how these traditions. But Paul says, hey, these are traditions of men, not of Christ. And then it's interesting, he brings up this idea of the elementary principles of the world. And uh, the idea, the actual Greek has this idea of uh, something in a row or a series. Uh, for example, the ABCs, it's in a particular series. It's the elementary principles of language, right? It, to read, you got to know your ABCs. It's that idea. But it was really intriguing to me uh, that some of the scholars pointed out the fact that it couldn't just, yeah, it had the idea of elementary principles, but beyond that, it had this idea of uh, probably need a better way of saying this, but it's like the uh, the, the heavenly language. Uh, that's probably a bad language. The stars, uh, the universe, uh, the planets. Uh, it's all the astrology kind of things. 
And so let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, in Paul's day, in the Roman world, the, the whole Greek-Roman philosophy, uh, they saw astrology, the things in the sky, the planets, the stars, all that kind of thing, as the, quote, queen of sciences. So this was, whoa, this was a big deal. And it's interesting that nearly all of the Roman emperors, as, as you look throughout history, uh, before they would go into battle, before they would make a big decision, they would go and they would consult the stars. Uh, they would bring the astronomers in and they would, they would do the, the, basically a horoscope. You know, like, you know, what do the stars say? And, and is, it, is it playing for me? And are we going to have victory? And, and how should I make my decisions? And, and it's interesting that in Paul's day, again, this Roman Greek philosophy that was just prevalent in, in the pagan world was that men and women, their lives were really fixed according to the stars, that the stars were dictating the lives of, of humanity. Which is strange because you see that today. <laughs> There's all these people who are like, I got to read my horoscope for today. Oh, I got I to know what my astrological sign is. And we're being governed as a pagan society by the, by the stars. And there's that idea contained in this, in this concept of the elementary principles. And again, it's, it is intriguing that when you look at the Gnosticism thing, as, as that continually grow and develop, that they took that language of the pagans, that everything was being dictated by the stars, and they began to teach that there was this, quote, secret code, uh, that if you learn the secret code, and if you, if, you, if you learn and came under the influence of the Gnostics, well, then you, then you had this special code, the secret, that allowed you to get out from under the influence and escape this pressure uh, of the astronomy of all the star stuff. Isn't it interesting that the solution to every single one of those things, according to Paul, is Jesus? That Jesus is the fullness of God, and in Jesus lives the fullness of God in bodily form. He's the creator of the universe, as we learned in chapter 1. And as such, your life is not dictated by the stars. Your life is being dictated by Christ who made the stars. I think that is so phenomenal of a thought. Isn't it interesting that as you're just looking at this idea of the traditions of men, as you're looking at this idea of the philosophical concepts, that really is a interesting notion when you look at today's world. In other words, uh, when you look at how society lives, we are all being driven by oh, secret special philosophy, oh, new knowledge and wisdom. And maybe the best illustration of that is, is looking at the diet and exercise industry. It seems like every three months there's a brand new fad when it comes to health and fitness. It's always like, hey, keto, oh, Atkins, oh, high fat, low fat, no fat. I mean, it's just you, you have all these fads that are just being propagated in the diet industry. And it's like everyone just jumps on the bandwagon. They try it for a little bit. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. Oh, there's a new one. I'll jump on that bandwagon. I'll try that for a little bit. And isn't it a sad thought that that is also happening in the church? That it's like there's, there's, there's a movement that seems like it's just be, because of all the, all the YouTube stuff and the podcasting and, and because of everyone has a voice, everyone then can have, oh, I, I, I have discovered the secret way of obtaining spiritual growth. <gasps> Five ways to pray more effectively. And we are, we, are, we are being dazed by all this new gadgets and gimmicks and, and wow kind of stuff. So whatever the latest fad, whatever is in vogue, that tends to be that which stirs us. And oh, that's what gets us excited. And uh, have you ever wanted to say, you know, you looked at your spiritual life and said, you know what, I, I need to become more of a man or a woman of prayer. I, I need to start spending more time in prayer. 
And so, hey, I, I recognize, okay, I need more prayer in my life, so, so what do I do? Oh, I go out and I find a book on how to pray. I, you know, if I'm really spiritual and I want to go to the old classics, you know, I'll, I'll go grab Ian Bounds. Uh, maybe I'll read a Leonard Ravenhill or the plethora of books that are, you know, out today on the topic of prayer. And I'm not downplaying that. I'm glad we have books on prayer. I love reading books on prayer. But isn't it interesting how often when I, when I feel the Spirit of God convicting me to go spend time in prayer, rather than praying, I read a book on prayer. See, I, I'm, I'm interested in the philosophy. I'm interested in the secret knowledge. I'm, somehow I, there's this thing within the modern, modern church where it's like, oh, I've got to unlock the secret code of my spiritual life. And the moment I, I get the secret, oh, that'll fix all my problems. I'll be able to walk in victory. Oh, I can walk in purity. Oh, I'll have joy. I'll never have to fear. Are you wrapped up in that kind of stuff? Have you been seduced? Have you been carried away by the latest and the greatest, the newest fad? The, and we, hey, this thing is just all over the church today. We are obsessed with information. We are obsessed with the latest and the greatest. We are obsessed with how to grow a church in 10 easy steps. We're, we're interested in, oh, the five secrets to spiritual growth. We're so fascinated with that kind of a thing. And again, there's some great books. There's, hey, there's some great information out there. And, and hey, maybe you should read some of that. But that should not replace the reality of the spiritual life in your life. In other words, if you want to pray, start to pray. The Holy Spirit will lead you. Hey, if you want to walk in victory and triumph, hey, you need to get into the Word and realize that it's not through some gimmick. It's not through some special technique that I find freedom from my addictions. The reality is what I need is Jesus. And I need to embrace Jesus. And I need to get wrapped up in Jesus and and that's what the word is proclaiming. So can I encourage you in your spiritual life, hey, don't be carried away by these empty philosophies and, and these tricks and this, this mindset and these traditions and, and this, this thought process that somehow I, I can gain victory and triumph through some means outside of Jesus. And whether it's through the stars or whether it's through my traditions or whether it's through the latest philosophy, the reality is that's not going to solve any of our spiritual issues. That's not going to help propagate our spiritual life. We need Jesus. So Paul, in the first beware, he says, hey, beware of these empty philosophies. Hey, beware of the latest trends, if I can put it in our language. He moves into number two. And he says, beware of legalism. And I, and I put in brackets religious legalism because, you know, I understand legalism is bad. But sometimes we, we're actually okay with legalism in our life oh, as long as it's spiritual. And I'm willing to actually live in religious legalism. And, I've, and for some reason, I, I, I presume that's okay rather than embracing the reality of the cross. And because it's a longer section, I would just encourage you to pause it and just read it. But verses 11 down through 17, as you walk through verse 11 through 17, there's really five categories that Paul seems to be hitting at in terms of this idea of spiritual legalism or legalism under the banner of the spiritual life. So it seems like what's happening is these false teachers were saying that the mark of true godliness and acceptance, in other words, if you're going to live out the reality of true godliness, well, then you had to keep or do five key things. In verse 11, Paul mentions circumcision. In verse 14, he talks about keeping the law. In verse 15, he talks about living under the strict code of the rulers and the authorities. 
And then in verse 16, he talks about keeping Jewish dietary restrictions as well as the Jewish customs, the holidays, and the Sabbaths. Now, it's interesting. When you look at that list, none of that is in and of itself seems to be evil. In fact, didn't God tell us in the Old Testament to be circumcised? Didn't God in the Old Testament tell us to keep the law? So, so Paul, how is it that you're saying that, that I'm being distracted? And Paul says, look, God gave you these good and rightful things, but what you did is that you turned within yourself and out of your own ability and your own resource, you have tried to produce and create your own spiritual life. That's legalism. See, legalism removes the necessity of faith. See, faith says, oh, I can't and I desperately need God in my life, that I cannot live the way, I, that way, the way I'm called to live. And I, I desperately need Jesus. So God, would you come in and through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you radically do and change my life? Legalism says, oh, all right, God, you've given me commands. Let me, tell, let me just show you how I can do this. And we in our own ability, in our own mindset, in our own effort, in our own talent, in our own wisdom, try to pull off what God has called us to do. And yet you'll find that it is impossible to live the Christian life. It's interesting as you go back into the Old Testament, not a single person could live the perfection of the law. And what the Old Testament proves is that nobody could actually do it. God gave these high and lofty commands and everyone was striving, everyone was struggling, everyone was just, uh, just doing their best to pull it off. And yet what, what, what came to the conclusion is no one could do it. In fact, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the best the Old Testament produced. And yet he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize that Jesus took the perfection of the law, the high demand of the law, and increased the intensity of this thing and brought it to a whole nother level? So if the Old Testament was impossible to live out, how much more impossible is it to live out the reality of the new covenant? Which means the only option you and I have to live the reality of the cross, to live the Christian life, is we need him to come and indwell our lives. And it's through the embrace of the person of Jesus, as his spirit lives inside of us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As he lives inside of you, suddenly you're able to live the Christian life, not out of strength, not out of self-effort, not out of your own wisdom, but out of his ability, his resource. So it's interesting, as you're walking through this list, Paul says, hey, God gave you circumcision. That's great. But that was done by human hands. I'm talking about a new reality of circumcision done by the Spirit of God. He says, hey, look, you kept the law, and, and the law had all this, was, was pointing to all these transgressions in your life. And I, I love what he says in verse 14. He says, think about this, that Jesus has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. And what is amazing is, is when you get into the Greek, the idea was, is there was this papyri in that day that uh, when they would write on it, their ink had no acid in it. So, you know, our ink has acid in it, so it stains the paper. But they would write with this, with this ink, but it had no, had no acid to stain the papyri, the, the paper. And so what they would do is that they would have this document and, they, you know, hey, paper was expensive. And so what they would do is at the end of something, they would take a, a, a damp cloth and they would wipe 
over the papyri and it would completely remove the, all the ink and it wouldn't be ingrained in the paper. So think about this. Uh, that's the language or that's what, that's what they're hinting at here in the, in the Greek. And Paul says, do you know what God has done with you? The law, which you could never have kept in the first place. Jesus took all the punishment of the law upon himself at the cross. And God has canceled out the certificate of debt. He literally took your debt on your piece of paper and he took the sponge and just went. And it literally is no longer there. And if that isn't phenomenal enough, he says at the end of verse 14 that he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And what is just incredible is in, the, is in the ancient world, when a law or a regulation was canceled, what they would do is they would take that law or that regulation and they would really fasten that law upon a board or a tree with a nail driven through it. And the whole idea was, is, hey, I've taken this law, this decree, this, this regulation, and I've placed it upon a board or I placed it on a, on a tree and I put a nail through it, meaning this thing no longer has power. This thing no longer has the authority. And isn't this phenomenal? That Jesus on the cross, Paul says, he has nailed the law. He has nailed our transgressions. Hey, the, 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 hey, what, the papyri that had you, all of your sins upon it, he has scrubbed clean. The law's not bad, Paul says. Hey, we learned that in, in, the, in Romans, in Galatians. Hey, the, the law's not evil, but the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus. The law can't save us. So Paul says, well, then why would you go back to the law if it can't save you? Why, why would I return under the authority of this thing that has no ability to produce life? Paul says, you need Jesus the one who dealt with the law, who dealt with the transgressions, who himself was nailed to the tree and in so doing nailed all the authority and regulations and, and the law standing against you and he has set you free. He has scrubbed your paper clean. So why would you put yourself back under that? He's removed that. So you don't have to be legalistic under the law. You need to embrace the reality of Christ. Which again, just ponder this, the Old Testament law, Jesus, it's not that he got rid of it. Paul says, hey, this isn't evil. This is good. But Jesus has taken this to a whole nother level and the life that we are called to live, it will fulfill this. That's not, the, that's not the problem. But the reality is the life of Christ is so far superior than the law. The law says stuff like don't murder. Jesus says you can't even have hatred in your heart. The law says, hey, you can't commit adultery. Jesus says, hey, I don't even want you to have lust. See, there's this whole inward reality that's on a whole nother level, which is just incredible. But you can't do that through legalism. You, you can't live the life of Christ through your own self-effort and your own ability. You need God Almighty to produce that within you. Uh, the third one, <clears throat> again, is this idea of living under the strict code of, of rulers and authorities. It's, it's fascinating when you get into that language of rulers and the authorities, uh, in, in that day and age, uh, the Jews had their hierarchy of angels and the language of these rulers and authorities was some of this hierarchy of the angels. Uh, when, when you look at the Gnostic language, uh, they use the rulers and the authority language for, again, some of the star stuff, the angel stuff. And when you really get into it, it seems like what Paul is getting at is he's saying, hey, you, you are no longer to live under this legalistic requirement of the angels and the stars and, and the horoscopes and, 
And maybe if I can put it into our language of today, hey, don't get wrapped up in the horoscopes. Hey, don't get wrapped up in the astrological charts or the Ouija boards or the mysticism or the occult stuff or, or other strange spiritual practices because they are not to have authority in your life. In fact, you get into this in verse 15, and this is so strong. Oh, this is so neat. Paul says that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and the authorities. So again, uh, Paul says, hey, this is, not, this is not about the stars. This is not about angel worship, uh, which we're going to get into here in a little bit uh, in, in the third one. Hey, this is not about this, the, the horoscopes. This is not about the occult stuff. This is, and again, the pagan world of Paul's day was wrapped up in all of this. Paul says in verse 15 that Jesus has disarmed all the rulers and the authorities. And that word disarmed literally means to, he has stripped them down. He has undressed them. He has made them naked, which I think is so funny and rather ironic. Because when you see Jesus on the cross, he literally was on the cross naked, is what, is what the Old Testament tells us. Uh, that the prophecies were, of course, we don't show that in the movies because <laughs> we, we got to have Christians be able to watch it. So, of course, we put them in a little loincloth, you know, boxer shorts kind of thing, uh, which is good. I'm, I appreciate that for the movies. But it seems like, according to the prophecies, uh, that his, his beard was really ripped out, uh, that he was not only scarred, but he was, he was stripped naked. He was exposed and Paul is using the imagery of the cross. And he says, but do you know what happens? In the midst of Jesus being stripped upon the cross, he was stripping all the authority and all the power of the angelic, the demonic, the, the occultic stuff, the, the star influence. And in a sense, it's like Paul's sitting back with a smile on his face saying, so who's naked now? In other words, yes. Our Lord was, was, was stripped, but in so doing, his stripping has stripped all the authority and all the power of anything else you want to try to put yourself under the influence of. And then he goes on, and I just love this, in verse 15, he says, And Jesus made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. And, I, and if, you, if you understand the Roman culture, and we don't have time to get into all this, so you'll have to study this out later. Uh, but Paul is alluding to the Roman triumph, that, that when a Caesar or, or a general would, would come into Rome and he had conquered this nation, they would literally parade the enemy down the streets of Rome and everyone would be cheering and everyone would be, hey, just celebrating the fact of the general. And the general would, would get to the Capitoline, the, the head hill, and they would put a crown of triumph on his head. And he would have this Roman triumph that was this celebration. And Paul is alluding to this saying, here is Jesus, our king, who has really stripped the enemy down. He has really stripped them naked. He has paraded them through the streets. And he is the one who is triumphant. He is the one wearing the crown. That is phenomenal to me. And there's so much little depth in that. I, I wish we had time to uh, flesh that out, but just something fun for you to study out. But again, Paul is saying, hey, you don't have to come under this legalistic requirement that this angelic and, and all the stars and, and all the occultic pagan stuff is trying to promote. Jesus has triumphed over all of it. He alone is the king. And then Paul kind of wraps up with the two last ones, which is all about diet and all about the days. He, he talks about the fact that, hey, don't let anyone judge you based on the Jewish dietary restrictions. So scholars tell us, of course, there was this uh, group of Jews. So even though Colossae was a small town, there was a rather big group of Jews. 
And of course, they're pressing this whole idea of the dietary restrictions, uh, which you see even an argument in the early church in the book of Acts. Of, of Do Gentiles, when they become saved, do they have to now live like Jews? Do they have to do the customs? Do they have to do the circumcision? Do you have to keep the dietary laws? You know, do they have to keep the Sabbath? Do they have to do, they have to do the Jewish thing? And again, Paul's saying, hey, look, that's a legalistic thing that you've gotten yourself into. And what God gave you, it was good and it was right, but the fullness of it has come. And all of that is pointing to a better reality, the substance of which is Christ. So if, 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 if here you are outside and you see a shadow, why would you get wrapped up in the shadow? Why would you start worshiping a shadow when the one who is casting the shadow is standing in front of you? So Paul is saying, Jesus is here. Why, why, would you, why would you fall in this legalistic requirement of worshiping some shadow when the fullness of the, the substance of it is actually here with you? Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, this is what Paul says. He says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and it's not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And in other words, Paul says, the law, again, the law's not bad. Hey, the law's not evil, right? That's the book of Romans. But the writer of Hebrews says, but look, the law, everything that was going on, the festivals, the dietary restrictions, hey, Christ has fulfilled all of that. That's, that's one of the major emphasis in the book of Hebrews. Christ has fulfilled it. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than the law. He is the fulfillment of all things. And as such, he's the substance of themselves. So, hey, they cannot save you. Hey, they, they cannot bring about righteousness and salvation. It is only Christ who has that ability. So again, beware of people who are propagating this legalistic requirement. And that's happening today, folks. Uh, you go into certain circles, and there's this whole Jewish uh, Hebrew roots movement that is going on. And, and hey, I love the Jewish culture. I, I, love, I love the symbolism that is, it all points to Christ. But, but I do not have to go back under the regulations of the law to celebrate Jesus. I, I don't have to live under the Jewish dietary restrictions. Oh, I can eat bacon if I want to. That, or a bat, <laughs> if you really wanted to. Or an owl, I guess that's possible too. So I, I don't have to live under the regulations. Why? Because the fullness is now is in Christ. Uh, we have groups today who are all about, well, if, if you're going to be spiritual, here's the checklist of do's and don'ts. Paul says that stuff never is going to save you. You will never find true holiness in you, in and of yourself, in your own legalistic propping up of your own self-will and determination Hey, if you try to grit your teeth and try to live holy, you'll still never be holy because that doesn't fix the inside stuff. See, you need to embrace a holy God and that is the only way the insides will ever be holy is when the holy God gets inside of you and starts changing and transforming your life. So Paul says, hey, would you quit turning inward? Hey, would you quit letting this be about you? Hey, would, would you quit letting this just be a self-discipline, self-propagation, self? Would you, this is not about you. So don't, hey, beware of people who are giving you legalistic requirements of this is what it has to look like and this is what you're supposed to do and if you're going to be spiritual, you've got to do this even if it's under the banner of spiritual or religious legalism. Uh, the third one that Paul gives in terms of these bewares, the three, the four, is beware of mysticism. 
And again, it doesn't matter if it's under the banner of spiritual mysticism, but Paul says, hey, beware of mysticism. And this comes out of verses 18 and 19. Let's just read those really quick. Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen, being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says, hey, let no one defraud you. Hey, let no one steal something from you. Let no one disqualify you. The word defraud, uh, it was, it was a, in Paul's day, it was an athletic term, meaning to be disqualified. In other words, if you didn't obey the rules, oh, hey, you no longer can play. So it's, it's the idea of being disqualified by a distraction. So in the context, we're not holding fast to the head. But there's this idea that we will, sorry, we don't grow spiritually by adding something to Christ. We grow by embracing and being conformed to Christ. So what you see then in, in what's going on in this, in this section of verse 18 and 19 is Paul says, hey, look, be careful of the people who are trying to add a reality to Christ. Hey, beware of the people who are trying to say that, that Jesus and the cross are insufficient for your salvation, that you need something added into it. And Paul really gives three key things. He says, beware of self-abasement, worship of angels, and visions. Uh, that idea of self-abasement, uh, the little idea is a false humility. Hey, beware of this idea of a, uh, and, and really goes to this idea of uh, that self-abuse uh, that makes us look humble, but really it's just pride. In other words, in the Middle Ages, you had all these people who took whips and then would whip themselves in order to have humility so they look really spiritual. Uh, or I would, you know, I'd put hair or a straw inside my clothes so it always itched. And it was a sign of bringing myself humble. But really in so doing, it just, it's a false humility because I'm gaining pride in the midst of trying to look humble on the outside. Paul says, don't have anything to do with that. And yeah, it looks spiritual, but hey, that doesn't bring salvation. That doesn't bring about true humility. Uh, again, I've, I've slightly mentioned this idea of the worship of angels, uh, but there was this whole uh, in the pagan world of the Romans and the Greeks, as well as the Jews, there's a whole sect of Jews who had a worship of angels. They had this hierarchy of angels. Uh, there was this whole idea uh, in Gnosticism of the angelic realm. And that, uh, that and again, the, the premise of this or the idea was, is that God was so big and he was so lofty and he was so great that I could never have access to God. And so I'd have to go to a lower rung angel who would go to a higher rung angel who would eventually make his way to God to give my requests. Again, it sounds very, uh, the Catholics have an element of that uh, in, in some sections of what they do. It's, it's this idea that Jesus is actually insufficient, that I need a different mediator. I need an angel or I, I need something between me and God himself. And what ends up happening is the moment that I start going to this mediator so that I can actually have access to God, I begin to worship the mediator thinking that well, if I, if I give praise and honor here, it's, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna get to God faster. And again, there's, there's a whole section of the modern church who've just gone crazy with this idea that I need to go to someone other than God himself because, well, they're the mediator between me and God. That's not what Scripture says. In fact, if you read Hebrews, especially the first couple of chapters, the, the writer of Hebrews is like, look, Jesus is greater than the angels. He made the angels. He's greater than even Moses. 
He's greater than the law. I mean, he's above all things. In fact, as you're reading through Hebrews, it's interesting. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. In other words, how is it that we have access to God? By the blood of Jesus, he gives us confidence. That's amazing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, we do not need a mediator outside of Jesus Christ. He is the only one we need. And the moment that I try to reach God through any other means besides Jesus, well, then I have idolatry in my life because now I have placed something above and beyond Jesus. Uh, look at what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or in John 14, 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our mediator. That we don't need anybody outside of Jesus. We don't need Mary. We don't need one of the apostles. We don't need a priest. We need Jesus because he is the mediator. He is God himself. And we have confidence and boldness to access into the very throne room of grace. So Paul says, look, you don't need this spiritual mysticism where we're worshiping the angelic realm and, and we're worshiping this false humility where we're, where we're making ourselves look really small and making ourselves look, oh, I feel horrible. And in so doing, I'm, I'm having an outward appearance of humility, but inward I'm growing in pride. And then the third one he mentions in this list is visions. And as I've been looking at all these categories, I'm, I am so in, it's so interesting to me that I think out of all, all four of these beware sections, this one seems to be the one that we struggle with the most, is this whole mysticism stuff. And if you don't like that word, pick something else. But it's this whole idea of, I need something outside of Jesus. Jesus' work is insufficient. The idea of vision, uh, it really has this idea of, uh, or, or sorry, when Paul says you're going into details about the visions, that going into detail means you're taking a stand or you're going into the details. You dwell on it frequently. You come back to the topic over and over. And visions here are, it's like a vision, right? It's things you've seen. It's a vision in terms of the future. And it's interestingly the way it is sometimes used as things that you've experienced. So it seems like what, what Paul is saying is there are people who just cannot stop talking about their past experiences or their future hopes. Oh, I've had a vision. Here's my vision. Oh. Let me tell you what, oh, let me tell you about my past. My, my, the vision that I've had in the past, yeah, my past experiences. And don't, don't we all know people like this who actually delight to talk more about themselves, who delight to talk more about prophecy, who delight to talk about whatever it may be more than they love to talk about Jesus. And what is just so heartbreaking to me is, you know, I, I look at the, the current state of the church and it seems like to me that we are so wrapped up in this, oh, it's all about me stuff. That, that when you look about, the, I, hey, I've got a prophetic voice, and I'm not against prophetic voices. Praise the Lord for, for prophetic voices. But you listen to most of the prophetic voices today, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. It's all about themselves, ultimately. I, I, got, I got a vision for the country, and, and whether it happens or doesn't happen, well, I may, have, I may have heard wrong. Wouldn't it be interesting if we got wrapped up in Jesus? And it wasn't about 
again, I'm not against spiritual gifts. I'm not against prophecy. Hey, I'm not against end times. I'm not against theological you know, uh, doctrine. I'm, I'm, not against, I'm not against any of that kind of stuff. In fact, that's all really important. But I know so many people who are more interested in end times than they are about Jesus. I, I know people who are more interested in their theological position than they are about Jesus. I know people who are more interested in the prophetic than they are about Jesus. See, I know people who are more interested in the spiritual gifts than the giver of the gifts. It seems like what Paul is saying is beware of anyone who tries to put something in front of Jesus. Hey, beware of anyone who's trying to replace Jesus. Hey, beware of anyone who tries to demean the work of Christ in your life and in this world. Christ is sufficient. Therefore, he doesn't need to be replaced. So whether someone's trying to add, whether someone's trying to take away, hey, beware of people like this. And can I encourage us? Beware that we should not give a lot of heed to the, to the modern garbly gook voices that we hear today. And again, there's some great voices speaking. There's a lot of great pastors today. Hey, I enjoy listening to podcasts, but, but I do not want to get so lost in something that leads me away from Jesus. I want to get lost in Jesus. See, I, I want to be pointed back to the word. I, I don't want to be pointed in any other direction than, than Jesus, the cross, and his word. See, if you want to talk about end times, fine. But I want to get smack dab in the word, and I want to embrace Jesus in this. Hey, if you want to talk about theological, theological perspective, hey I, hey, I enjoy those discussions. But I don't want to get so wrapped up in a theological discussion that I lose sight of Christ. Because he should be the focus of all of this stuff. See, if I'm more interested in getting the gift than I am about getting Jesus, there's a problem in my life. If, I, if I'm more interested in people hearing about my opinion or my prophetic insight or my vision or my past experience or my hope for the future or my whatever, then the focus is on me and not upon Jesus. And I have become my own idol. Paul says, beware, 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 even if, even if it's under the banner of spiritual uh, spirituality. And uh, the last beware that Paul gives, and again, we're just flying through these quickly, uh, but he says, beware of asceticism, which comes out of verses 20 through 23. Uh, this, is, this is what those verses say. Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and the teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they have no value against fleshly indulgence. The word asceticism, if you don't know, means a severe self-denial or self-discipline against all forms of indulgence. And again, you could link this entire section with what we just talked about uh, in the previous one. But it seems like what Paul is getting at is there was this teaching that was going on in Colossae. And again, he doesn't spell out the specific teachings. He doesn't say problem number one, problem number two. He's, he's addressing the issues. And so we have to conclude or work backwards uh, what these issues are. But it seems like one of the issues or one of the false teachings that was going on is this whole philosophy of, well, hey, this is all about you. And hey, grab some worldly wisdom and slap your hand and take cold showers and self-discipline and, and self, hey, just grit your teeth for this thing and you'll be fine. And again, it goes back to that whole idea of uh, that, that false humility thing. It goes back to that idea of uh, that in the Middle Ages, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to hurt myself. Hey, I'm going to wear the straw or the, or the hair so that, you know, that, that I'm feeling pain. So I'm reminded of Christ. And 
Paul says we don't have to do those kind of things. That the reality is, is if, if, I've, if I sin, I need to turn to Christ. I, I don't need to pay penance. Even the Christian version of that, which is like, I feel really bad for a few days. God, will you please forgive me now? You know how sorry I am. See, we don't, I can, I can immediately turn to Christ. That, that I don't, I don't, see, I cannot produce righteousness through self-effort, through self-discipline. And Paul says there is an element of worldly wisdom in this. And there is. Uh, if you came up to me and said, Nathan, uh, I'm an alcoholic and uh, I, I, I need some help. Well, I would look at you and say, okay, well, we need to deal with a heart issue, but let's, let's talk about some principles first. You like, you like a Coke. You, you want to drink some soda. Don't go down to your local bar where you've always gotten drunk and drink your soda. That is so foolish and dumb. Why would you do that? See, if, if you've always given in right there, just avoid it. Now, the problem is, is there's, there's worldly wisdom in that. Paul says, hey, that's true. But it doesn't deal with that indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't deal with the heart. So there's a tension in this. There, there is practical wisdom that's helpful. And, and, and hey, there, if, you're, if you're dealing with lust, get covenant eyes. But covenant eyes on your computer so that you don't go to certain websites doesn't fix the heart issue. Now, it's going to help you from looking at the pornography, but it doesn't fix the heart issue. Hey, going, not going down to the local bar for a Coke, hey, that, that'll, that'll help because you're out of that situation, but that doesn't deal with the heart issue. Paul says, yeah, there is some wisdom, some worldly principles in the do not taste, do not touch, do not handle kind of stuff. And, and yeah, there's a semblance of, of wisdom in those elementary principles and teachings of men. However, they don't change the heart. What changes the heart? Jesus. The only way we can become holy, the only way that we're going to walk in godliness is we need his salvific work. We need his transformative, sanctifying work in our lives, says Paul. That's actually what deals with the fleshly indulgence, the inner heart kind of stuff. Now, Paul is not arguing <clears throat> for a lack of discipline. He's not saying just throw it all human discipline. Because as you, as you look at his life, he, he mentions discipline. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.8, he says, For bodily discipline is only a little profit. But it is a profit. Do you notice that? It is a profit, even though it may be little. But he says, Godliness is profitable for all things. So, in other words, if you're going to put your emphasis somewhere, don't, don't worry about the bodily discipline. Worry about godliness, because godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So again, he's not advocating for a lack of discipline in our lives. Dis dis there's, there, is a, there is wisdom in discipline. Hey, you should exercise. You should eat healthy. There's, hey, Paul says, I discipline my body. But, but here's the concept. Sanctification of the soul comes through Christ, not from self-discipline. So in other words, what the false teachers were telling you is, hey, you want to be saved? If you want to walk in sanctification, hey, be disciplined. Hey, hurt yourself. Hey, grit your teeth. Pull this thing off. Take cold showers. Flick rubber bands or whatever it, may, whatever it may be. Rather, Paul says, what if you would quit trying to discipline yourself and rather you turn and embrace Jesus? And yeah, there may be some wisdom in the discipline stuff. And, and hey, yeah, don't go down to the bar if, if you're an alcoholic. Hey, put covenant eyes on if, if you're dealing with lust but you need to deal with a heart issue. And the heart issue is the only way you're going to deal with the heart stuff is he is going to have to transform you. 
Can I encourage you in this day and age? We have so much information, so many people saying, oh, if you just grit your teeth, hey, if you just read this book, hey, if you just go through these 12 steps, hey, if you just read this five, five chapter thing, hey, if you just do this, yeah, it's a secret to spiritual success. Uh, you'll notice that even though I broke them into four categories, the reality is, is all of these kind of merge together. And again, as I mentioned before, the, the observation that, that you've got to kind of come away with is, it seems like every single problem that the false teachers were, were bringing about in Colossae was the fact that Jesus is not enough, that Jesus is insufficient, that I either have to add something to him or I'm going to have to take on the bulk of the work because his work upon the cross is insufficient. That's not true. Jesus and the cross are fully sufficient. It is efficacious. It, it, is, it is effectual. It works. He works. He is the only transformative thing in our lives. You and I cannot change out of our own grit and determination, out of our worship of angels or our, our self-discipline or our anything. We, we cannot change our lives. Yes, we can change a, a measure of the outside, but it'll never change the heart. So as you stand back, Paul has a correction to every single one of these false teachings. And he, and he weaves it through all the passages. What is Paul's correction to the false teaching? Jesus. That Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the focus. Which should not be a surprise to us. Because all through chapter 1, again, he's talking about the fact that Jesus is to be preeminent. He is to have first place in all things. And I kept reminding us as we were walking through those studies in, in chapter 1, the reason why I wanted to spend so much time is because he's hinting at all the things he's about to bring up in chapter 2. And he's saying, Jesus is the creator. He's over all things. Jesus, hey, he's in this position of headship. He's, he's the ruler of all. And the reason he's doing all that is he's laying the foundation. So as he comes and deals with chapter 2, and he says, look, there's this problem. Jesus is the answer. Hey, there's this problem. Jesus is the answer. Hey, there's this distraction over here. Jesus is the answer. Hey, don't get wrapped up in this. Why? Because Jesus is the answer. Would you realize that everything that you need for life and for godliness is found in one place, Jesus, as 2 Peter 1.3 says, that we don't need anything outside of Jesus. Now, if you're dealing with fear or anxiety or lust or pride or greed or, or whatever the issue may be in your life, the solution isn't to go looking for a new book or a new technique or a new, and again, I'm not against the books. I'm not against the online courses. I love that kind of stuff. But that's not going to bring about salvation. What brings about salvation? Jesus. Would you get wrapped up in him? We just get crazy about Jesus. I want to end with this. Uh, there's an interesting statement in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. So God, God is looking at Israel and he's speaking to the mouth of Jeremiah. He says, look, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that hold no water. It's interesting, if you go to the Middle East today, uh, water is one of the most precious commodities. Uh, Israel is very guarded about their water. And the reason is they don't have a lot of natural water. And in the ancient days, what they would typically do is if you uh, didn't have source to a well, you'd have to build a cistern. And so you would dig, typically in the limestone, you'd dig this massive cave. Uh, and sometimes it's hundreds, hundreds, thousands of gallons uh, some of them you can walk into and fit, you know, 100 people in the, in the little room. And then they would take 
uh, the limestone. They would mix it with some stuff and put lime all over the outside to seal it in. And the idea is that when the rain would fall, they would filter all this water into these cisterns so that in the times where there wasn't raining, they still had access to water. Think about what God is saying. He says, oh, my people have committed two evils. Here I am. I'm a fountain of living water. There's a nonstop supply of resource and life for what you need. But rather than turn to me, the fountain of living waters, my people have gone out and dug for themselves their own cisterns. So ponder the irony. Rather than turning to God for our water, we have expelled our own water in sweat, digging our own out of our own ability, out of our own resource, out of our own talent, out of our own grit and determination. We have dug our own cistern so that I could have my own water. And we've, hey, we put the lime all around the inside of it, but here's the problem, God says. Your cisterns are broken cisterns and they can hold no water. So here's this fountain of living waters of who I am, says the Lord. But you've turned your back on me and out of your own self-effort, out of your own ability, out of your own strength, out of the own sweat of your own brow, you have dug your own cistern and it can hold nothing. So you've turned to your own accomplishment and self and there's nothing to show for it. And you've forsaken me, the one that has given you everything. Can I encourage us who live in this day? There is so much noise in the modern church. There, there's so much rah, rah, rah for the new and the latest and the greatest. There's so much distraction about, oh, this prophetic insight and, oh, this vision and, and this person and this message and this whatever it may be. This end times philosophy, this theological discussion, this da, 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 da. There's, there's a myriad. Of, I mean, I'm, there are so many distractions in the modern church all yelling at us, telling us how we can be godly and spiritual. And it seems like what the modern church has done is we have forsaken the fountain of living waters, Jesus himself, and we have gone and out of our own effort, out of our own determination, out of our own building funds, out of our own resource and grit and determination, we in the modern church have built this whole elaborate system of discipline and doctrine and ability and I'm, I'm doing my best and I'm trying and and we're exhausted, and, and the sweat's pouring off our brow, and we have nothing to show for it. There's no joy. There's no life. And hey, when someone shows up, I'll fake it for a little while, and I'll, I'll just, eh. but we're lacking. Paul says, beware of all that stuff. Beware of anything that takes you from the fountain of living waters, if I can use that as the illustration. Hey, beware of anything that draws you or focus away from Jesus. Hey, beware of anything but him. Can I just freshly encourage you in this day and in this hour in which we live, don't be distracted. It makes no sense to me at all. <laughs> it makes no sense why the modern church is so wrapped up in a thousand things but Jesus, who is the preeminent one. Why would you and I turn our backs on the fountain of living water to embrace our own self-effort that doesn't work in the end anyway? Would you go after Jesus? Would you not get lost in all the false teaching of what Paul mentions in his day, which is the same stuff that seems like it's distracting us today? Would you go after Christ, the fountain of living waters? Oh, I want that for us. Oh, and I want that for the modern church so bad. Would you join me in prayer, just praying for the state of our church? Oh, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. And Lord, I'm just, I'm so burdened by the fact that we are distracted by so many 
seemingly good things that ultimately are just broken cisterns. That we have tried in our own ability, out of our own effort, out of our own talent to, to live a godly life. And yet what the only thing that we're showing is that we actually just look more like the world and less like you. And Lord, what would it look like if a band of men and women would say, I'm done striving by my own effort. I'm done trying out of my own discipline and my own ability, out of my own resource, out of my own wisdom. And rather, I'm going to live by the indwelling life of Christ. That somehow, Lord, what you want to do with me and my life in this world can so overwhelm and go beyond all that I could do on my own. So, Lord, I pray that for everyone who is listening, don't let us get distracted Lord, don't let us turn to any false teaching of this day. Lord, don't let us be removed from the, from the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the centrality of Christ. For you and you alone are preeminent. Lord, would you have first place in every area of my life? Lord, this world needs to see, Je- this world needs to see Jesus. This world needs to see you, the fountain of living waters, And the only way they're going to see you is if they see you and me. So Lord, would you get me out of the way so your life could be seen? Lord, the solution to every single false teaching is you. The solution to every problem in my life is you because you are all that I need for life and for godliness. So Lord, this morning, I just want to embrace you afresh. I want to just press into you and just declare that I need you. We love you, Jesus. We just give you all the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.